Book Three, Chapter Four of the Four Stragglers by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Time Lock of the Sea. Low tide at three fifteen. Captain Francis Newcomb, in the stern of a small boat, drew his flashlight from his pocket and consulted his watch. Five minutes after two. He nodded his head in satisfaction. Just right. And the night was just right, just cloudy enough to make of the moonlight an ally rather than a foe. It disclosed the island there looming up ahead, now perhaps a mile away. It would not disclose so diminutive a thing as this little motor-boat out here on the water creeping in toward the shore. The boat was barely large enough to accommodate the baggage piled forward and still leave room for Runnels and himself. Also the boat leaked abominably. Also the engine, not only decrepit but in bad repair, was troublesome and spiteful. Captain Francis Newcomb shrugged his shoulders. The engine was Runnels' lookout. That was why, as a matter of fact, Runnels was here at all. As for the rest, what did it matter? The boat had been bought for the proverbial song over there on the mainland, and it was good enough to serve its present purpose. Again he changed his position, but his eyes narrowed now as they fixed on Runnels' back. Runnels sat amidships where he could both nurse the engine and manipulate the little steering-wheel at his side. Runnels was a necessary evil. He, Newcomb, did not know how to run the engine. Therefore he had been obliged to bring Runnels along, and therefore Runnels would participate after all in the old fool's half-million, temporarily. Afterwards, well, there were so many things that might happen when Runnels had lost his present usefulness. Runnels spoke now abruptly. "'It's pretty hard to make out anything ashore,' he said, "'but if we've hit it right, we ought to be just about heading for a little above the boathouse. Can you pick up anything?' "'Nothing but the outline of the island against the sea,' Captain Francis Newcomb answered. "'We're too far out yet. Runnels' sequence of thought was obviously irrelevant and disconnected. "'The blinking swine,' he muttered savagely, "'stripped to the pelt and searched I was, and you too, and kicked ashore like a dog. God, it's too bad they ain't going to know they'll have had the trick turned on em after all. I'd give a good bit of my share to see Locke's face, if he knew. He wouldn't think himself such a wily bird, maybe.' "'You're a bit of a fool, Runnels.' said Captain Francis Newcomb shortly. His train of thought had been interrupted. Runnels had suggested another, Locke. Captain Francis Newcomb's hands clenched suddenly, fiercely in the darkness. Locke. Some day, somewhere, but not now. Not until the days and months, yes, even years, if necessary, were past and gone, and Locke had forgotten Captain Francis Newcomb, and Scotland Yard had forgotten. He would meet Locke again and when that time came there would be no ammunition wasted, as there had been in that damned thicket that night. Luck! The fool doubtless thought that he had been completely master of the situation, and of Captain Francis Newcomb, even to the extent of obliterating Captain Francis Newcomb. Well, perhaps he had. It was quite true that the clubs of London, and, yes, for instance, the charming old Earl of Cloverley, would know Captain Francis Newcomb no more, but Shadow Varn still lived, and Shadow Varn, with half a million dollars, 
even in a new environment, wherever it might be, did not present so drear and uninviting a prospect. Ha! Locke, Locke could wait. That was a pleasure the future held in store. What counted now, the only thing that counted, was getting the money actually into his possession. That, and the assurance that the trail was smothered and lost behind him. Well, the former was only a matter of, say, an hour or so at the most now, and the latter left nothing to be desired, did it? He smiled with cool ironic complacency. Locke, having in mind Scotland Yard, would expect him to disappear as effectually and as rapidly as possible. Locke ought not to be disappointed. He had disappeared, he and Runnels, and, equally important, their luggage. One was sometimes too easily traced by luggage, especially with that infernally efficient checking system they employed on the railroads here in America. It had been rather simple. When Runnels and the luggage and himself had all been dumped with equal lack of ceremony on a wharf over there on the mainland, he had had some of the negroes that were loitering around carry the luggage into a sort of storage shed that was on the dock, and merely saying that he would send for his things, he and Runnels had unostentatiously allowed themselves to be swallowed up by the city. And then they had separated. The rest had been a matter of detail, detail in which Runnels, with the experience of years, was particularly efficient. A purchase here, a purchase there, quite innocent purchases in themselves, and later on a man, not two men, but one man, a man who did not at all look like Runnels, seeing the chance of picking up a bargain in a second-hand motor-boat, somewhere along the waterfront, had bought it and gone away with it. Later on again, but not until after nightfall, not until after nine o'clock, in fact, he, Captain Francis Newcomb, had sent for the luggage, by the very simple expedient of forcing an entry into the shed and loading it into the motor-boat that Runnels had brought alongside the dock. Thereafter, Runnels, the luggage and himself, had disappeared. Surely Locke ought to be quite satisfied. He, Captain Francis Newcomb, was doing his best to guarantee Polly against any unseemly publicity in connection with Scotland Yard. And he would continue to do so. With any kind of luck, he would be away from the island here again long before daylight. Then, say, a few nights cruising along the coast, laying up by day, and then, as circumstances dictated, by railroad, or whatever means were safest, a final... With a smothered oath, Captain Francis Newcomb snatched at the gunwale of the boat for support, as he was thrown suddenly forward from his seat. The boat seemed to stagger and recoil, as from some vicious blow that had been dealt it, and then, as he recovered his balance, it surged forward again, with an ugly, rending, tearing sound along the bottom planks, rocking violently, then an even keel again, and silence. Runnels had stopped the engine. "'My God!' Runnels cried out wildly. "'We've gone and done it!' Captain Francis Newcomb was on his feet, peering through the darkness to where Runnels, who, after stopping the engine, had sprung forward from his seat, was now groping around beneath the pile of luggage. "'A reef, eh?' said Captain Francis Newcomb coolly. "'Well, we got over it. We're in deep water again. Carry on.' Runnell's voice came back full of fear. "'We're done, we are,' he mumbled. "'I stopped the engine the minute she hit. But she had too much way on her. That's what carried her over. She's bashed a hole in her the size of your head. 
She won't float five minutes. Start her ahead again, then, Captain Francis Newcomb's voice snapped now. It won't do any good, Runnels answered, as he stumbled back to his former place. She won't anywhere near make the shore. It's half a mile, at least. Quite so, said Captain Francis Newcomb. But, in that case, we won't have so far to swim. The engine started up again. It ain't as though we didn't know there was reefs, Runnels was stuttering his words. Only we'd figure with our light draft we wouldn't any more than scrape one anyhow, and it wouldn't do us any harm. But she's rotten, and that's what she is, plain rotten and putty, and we must have hit a sharp ledge of rock. God, we've a foot of water in us now. Yes, said Captain Francis Newcomb calmly. Well, don't blubber about it. We'll get ashore, and we'll get away again. There's half a dozen skiffs and things of that sort stowed away in the boathouse that are never used now. One of them will never be missed, and we can at least get far enough away from the island by daybreak not to be seen, and eventually we'll make the other side, even if it is a bit of a row. Row, ejaculated Runnels. Yes, said Captain Francis Newcomb curtly. Why not, since we have to? We can't steal a motor-boat whose loss would be discovered, can we? My God, said Runnels. The water was sloshing around Captain Francis Newcomb's feet. The boat had already grown noticeably sluggish in its movement. He cast an appraising eye toward the land. It was almost impossible to judge the distance. Runnels had said half a mile a few minutes ago. Call it a quarter of a mile now. But Runnels was quite right in one respect. It was certain now that the boat would scuttle before the shore was reached. "'How far can you swim, Runnels?' he demanded abruptly. "'It ain't that,' choked Runnels. "'I can swim all right. It's—' "'It was just a matter of whether your body would be washed up on the shore, which would be equally as bad as though the boat stranded there for the edification of our friend Locke,' drawled Captain Francis Newcomb. "'But since you can swim that far, and since the boat's got to sink—' Let her sink here in deep water, where she won't keep anybody awake at night, wondering about her, or us. Stop the engine again. But the luggage, said Runnels, I... It will sink out of sight quite readily, but run a rope through the handles and lash the stuff to the boat, so it won't drift ashore. Yes, and anything else that's loose, said Captain Francis Newcomb tersely. I can't swim a quarter of a mile with portmanteaus. Stop the engine. "'Strike me pink,' said Runnels faintly, as he obeyed and again stumbled forward to the luggage. Captain Francis Newcomb sat down and began to unlace his boots. The water was nearly level with the bottom of the seat. "'Hurry up, Runnels,' he called. "'It's all right,' said Runnels after a moment. "'Take your boots off, then, and sling them around your neck,' ordered Captain Francis Newcomb. "'Yes,' said Runnels. Captain Francis Newcomb stood up, and divested himself of a light raincoat he had been wearing. From the skirt of the garment he ripped off a generous portion, and, taking out his revolver and flashlight, wrapped them around and around with the waterproof cloth. The coat itself he thrust into an already water-filled locker under the seat where it could not float away. "'Ready, Runnels?' he inquired. "'Yes,' said Runnels. "'Come on, then.' said Captain Francis Newcomb. The gunwale was awash as he struck out. A dozen strokes away, as he looked back, the boat had disappeared. 
He cursed sullenly under his breath, then laughed defiantly. It would take more than that to beat Shadow Varn. Runnels swam steadily at his side. Presently they stepped out on the shore. Captain Francis Newcomb stared up and down the beach, as he seated himself on the sand, and began to pull on his boots. "'We're a bit off our bearings, Runnels,' he said. "'I couldn't see any sign of the boathouse, even when I was swimming in, and I can't see it now. Which way do you think it is?' Runnels was also struggling with his wet boots. "'We're too far up,' he answered. "'I thought I had it about right, but I figured that if I didn't quite hit it, it would be safer to be on this side than the other, so we wouldn't have to pass either the wharf or the house in getting to it.' "'Good,' commented Captain Francis Newcomb. "'We'll walk back that way, then.' They started along the beach. For perhaps half a mile they walked in silence, and then, rounding a little point, the boathouse came into view a short distance ahead. A moment later they passed in under the overhang of the veranda and then Runnels snarled suddenly. Captain Francis Newcomb was unwrapping his flashlight. The faint stray rays of moonlight that managed to penetrate the place did little more than accomplish the creation of innumerable black shadows of grotesque shapes. "'What's the matter?' he demanded. "'The damned place under here gives me the creeps after last night,' Runnels growled. "'It's not exactly pleasant,' admitted Captain Francis Newcomb casually. "'You're bloody well right it ain't,' agreed Runnels fervently. And then sharply, as the ray from the flashlight in Captain Francis Newcomb's hand streamed out, "'That's where he lay last night, only the water's farther out now. It's blasted queer, the thing never tackled the old madman in all this time.' "'On the contrary,' said Captain Francis Newcomb, "'it would rather indicate that the brute was a transient visitor.' "'Then I hope to God,' mumbled Runnels, that it didn't like the quarters well enough to stick them for another night. "'I agree with you,' laughed Captain Francis Newcomb coolly. "'But as it happens, it's low tide now, and the water is out beyond where we are going, which may offer an alternative solution to old Marlin's escape. However, Runnels, that's not what we are looking for. We're looking for a keyhole.' He led the way forward, his flashlight playing on the big central concrete pier, some eight feet square, in front of him. He was chuckling quietly to himself. It being established that the old maniac's hiding-place was here under the boathouse, a hiding-place that was opened by a key, and that, except at low tide, was inaccessible, the precise location of that hiding-place became obvious even to a child. The row of little piers that supported the structure at the sides and front were all individually too small to be hollow and there was absolutely nothing else here except the big centre support. With Runnels beside him now, he began to examine this centre pier under the ray of his flashlight. He walked once completely around it, making a quick preliminary examination. The pier was some six or seven feet in height, and the concrete construction was reinforced with massive iron bands placed both horizontally and transversely between two and three feet apart the small squares thus formed giving a sort of checkerboard effect to the mass. The lower portion was green with sea-slime. There was no apparent evidence of any opening. But Captain Francis Newcomb had not expected that there would be. "'Look for a little hole, Runnels,' he said. "'Anything, for instance, that might appear to be no more than a fault in the concrete. 
and look particularly above high water mark. The opening is below, because the old man could only get in at low tide. But the keyhole is more likely to be above, out of the reach of the water, because it must be watertight inside. Yes, said Runnels. They made a second circuit of the pier, but carefully now, searching minutely over every inch of surface. It took a long time, a very long time, a quarter of an hour, a half hour, more. And still there was no sign of either keyhole or opening. Strike me pink, grumbled Runnels. It looks like it was sticking to us tonight. This is what I calls rotten luck. And I was thinking that it was excellent, even beyond expectations, Runnels, said Captain Francis Newcomb smoothly. The old man has done his work so well that it is certain no one would stumble on it. Therefore, when we get away, we do so with the absolute knowledge that an empty hiding-place will never be discovered. You follow that, don't you, Runnels? No one except you and I will know that the money was ever found, or taken." "'Yes,' said Runnels gruffly, "'but we ain't got it yet, and we must have been at it a good hour already, and the tide's coming back in now.' "'Quite so.' said Captain Francis Newcomb evenly. But if we don't get it tonight, there is tomorrow night, and the night after that again. There are always the woods, and your ability as a thief guarantees us plenty to eat. Meanwhile, we'll stick to this side here fronting the sea. It's the logical place. One couldn't be seen even from under the veranda back there. Go over every bit of the ironwork now." Another quarter of an hour passed in silence, save for the lap of the water that, with the tide on the turn now, had crept up almost to the base of the pier. The flashlight moved slowly up and down and to right and left, as the two men crouched there, bent forward, their fingers augmenting the sense of sight, feeling over the surface of the cement and iron that here was barnacle-coated, and there covered with festoons of the green slime. "'It's no good.' said Runnels pessimistically at last. Let's try around on another side, and get out of the water. I'm standing in it now. It's here and nowhere else, said Captain Francis Newcomb doggedly. And, furthermore, I'm certain it's one of these squares inside the intersecting pieces of iron. It would be just big enough to allow a man to crawl in and out, and not too big or too heavy for one man to handle alone. It can't be anything else. Whatever's here the old man made himself. No one helped him. Understand, Runnels? His secret wouldn't be worth anything in that case. Go on. Hunt. But Runnels, instead, had suddenly straightened up. I thought I heard something out there like—like like a low splashing, he said tensely. Captain Francis Newcomb paid no heed. He was laughing, low, jubilantly, triumphantly. I've got it, Runnels, he cried. Here's a bit of the iron down here that moves to one side, just a little piece. Look! And the keyhole underneath! I was wrong about the keyhole being above high water. It isn't, or anywhere near it, but we'll see how the contrivance works. He thrust his hand into his pocket, brought out the bronze key, fitted it quickly into the keyhole, and turned it. A faint click answered him. Push, Runnels, on that square just above the water. It's bound to swing inward. These iron strips hide the joints. But he did not wait for Runnels to obey his injunction. He snatched the key out of the lock again, and even as he saw the piece of iron swing back into place covering the keyhole, he was pushing against the concrete slab himself. 
it swung back and inward from its upper edge with a sort of oscillating movement his flashlight bored into the opening clever the old maniac had had the cunning of a maniac it was quite clear old marlin had cut away the square and fitted it with a new block yes he could see the interior would of course have been flooded at high water while the old madman was preparing the new block but that made no difference the place would always empty itself at low tide again because the flooring or base in there was on the same level as the lower edge of the opening and it would be when it was empty of water naturally that the new block would be fitted into place and thereafter it would remain empty he was crawling through the opening now the weight of the swinging block causing it to press against his shoulders but giving way easily before his advance there was just room to squeeze through very ingenious the walls were a good foot to a foot and a half thick the lock-bar worked through the side of the pier wall into the middle of the edge of the movable block so no water could get in that way and the block when closed fitted in a series of gaskets against the inside of the iron bands that reinforced the outside of the pier which latter overlapping the edges of the block hid any indication of an entrance from view it must have taken the old fool weeks again captain francis newcomb laughed his head and shoulders were through now and with his flashlight's ray flooding the interior he could see that a cry sudden wild terror-stricken from runnels reached him quick runnels cried frantically for the love of god make room for me the thing's here quick quick let me get in the thing in a flash captain francis newcomb wriggled the rest of his body through the opening and holding back the movable block sent his flashlight's ray streaming out through the opening it lighted up runnels face contorted with fear ashen to the lips as the man came plunging along and out beyond it played on a waving sinuous tentacle another and another groping snatching feeling and from out of the midst of these a revolting pair of eyes and a beak horny monstrous in shape like a parrot's beak with a gasp runnels came through sprawling on the floor the movable block swung back into place with a little click captain francis newcomb shrugged his shoulders a bit of a close shave runnels he said i fancy you're right last night was enough to his liking to bring the brute back again rather a bore too unless he moves off again he's got us penned up until low water that'll be twelve hours whimpered runnels and it'll be daylight then and another twelve before we get out when it's dark captain francis newcomb shrugged his shoulders again his flashlight was playing around him the hollow space here inside the pier was perhaps six feet square and solid concrete top bottom and sides this fact he absorbed subconsciously as he reached quickly out now to a little shelf that had been built out from one side of the wall there was a half-burned candle here and some matches and lying beside these a package wrapped in oiled silk he struck a match lighted the candle switched off his flashlight thrust it into his pocket and snatched up the package an instant more and he had unwrapped it and unholy laughter came and the soul of the man rocked with it it rose and fell hollow and muffled in the little space where there was scarcely room for the two men to move without jostling one another the money he had won it was his 
Locke, Paul Cremar, Scotland Yard, ha, ha! Well, they had pitted themselves against Shadow Varn, and Shadow Varn had never yet failed to get what he went after, in spite of man or God or devil, and he had not failed now, and he never would fail. He was tossing the bundles of banknotes from hand to hand with boastful glee. "'This'll buck you up a bit, Runnels,' he laughed. "'You'll be well paid for waiting even if it has to be until tomorrow night, eh? What?' Runnels, on his feet now, a sudden red of avarice burning in his cheeks, grabbed at one of the bundles, and began to fondle the notes with eager fingers. "'God!' he croaked hoarsely. "'Thousand-dollar notes! Strike me pink! God!' Captain Francis Newcomb was still laughing, but his eyes had narrowed now, as, watching Runnels, there came a sudden thought. Would he need Runnels any more? There wasn't any motor-boat to run but it was a long way in a rowboat for one man over to the mainland. Here in the old maniac's hiding-place, ideal, and a bit of irony in it too. Delicious irony. Well, it did not require instant decision. Meanwhile, it seemed to be strangely oppressive in here, in the confined space. "'It's stuffy in here, Runnels,' he said. "'Pull that door, or block, or whatever you like to call it, back a crack, and freshen the place up.' The door was fitted with a light brass handle, similar to a handle used on a bureau drawer. Runnels stooped, still clutching a bundle of banknotes in one hand, and giving the handle a careless pull. The block did not move. He gave the handle a vicious tug then, but still with the same result. He dropped the bundle of banknotes and used both hands. The block did not yield. "'I can't move the damned thing,' he snarled. It seems to be locked. Captain Francis Newcomb's voice was suddenly cold and hard. Try again, he said. Here, I'll help you. Take your coat off and run the sleeve, the two of them if you can, through the handle so we can both get hold. Runnels obeyed. Both men pulled. The handle broke away from its fastenings. The block did not move. It's locked, I tell you, panted Runnels. Haven't you got the key? Yes, said Captain Francis Newcomb quietly, but there's no hidden keyhole here. It's locked from the outside, a spring lock. I remember now hearing it click. The old man would set it so that he could get out, of course, every time he entered. We didn't. God, said Runnels thickly, what are we going to do? Captain Francis Newcomb's eyes studied the four walls and roof. He spoke more to himself than Runnels. "'Say, six by six by six, he said. "'Roughly two hundred cubic feet. Watertight, hermetically sealed. No air except what's in here now. One hundred cubic feet per man. Short work. Very short.' "'What do you mean?' whispered Runnels, with whitening face, and coughed. "'I mean that brute out there.' If it still is out there, counts for nothing now, said Captain Francis Newcomb steadily. We could at least fight that. We can't fight suffocation. I'd say a very few minutes, Runnels, before we're groggy if we can't get air. I don't know how long the rest of it will take. Runnels screamed. His face gray, beads of sweat suddenly spurting from his forehead, he flung himself against the cement door, clawing with his fingernails. 
where no fingernails could grip, around the edges of the block. And then in maniacal frenzy he attacked the wall with his pocket-knife. The blades broke. Captain Francis Newcomb, with a queer, set smile, drew his revolver, and, holding the muzzle close to the wall, fired. The bullet made little impression. With the muzzle now held over the same spot, he fired again. And now he choked and coughed a little. The acrid fumes helped to vitiate the air. "'You're making it worse! My God, you're making it worse!' shrieked Runnels. "'I can't breathe that stuff into me!' I prefer to be doing something, even if it's pretty well a foregone conclusion that it's useless, than sit on the floor and wait," Captain Francis Newcomb answered. A bullet probably hasn't the ghost of a chance of going through. But if a bullet won't, nothing that we have got to work with will. The lighted candle on the shelf began to flicker. Captain Francis Newcomb fired again, once more, and yet still another shot. Runnels moaned and staggered. He went to the floor, his fists beating at the wall until they bled. Captain Francis Newcomb watched the candle. The minutes passed. The light grew dim. Captain Francis Newcomb sat down on the floor. A strange coughing, a mingling of choking sounds. The candle flickered and went out. Captain Francis Newcomb spoke. There was something debonair in his voice, in spite of its laboured utterance. The house divided, Runnels. Do you remember that night in the thicket? There was no answer. Again Captain Francis Newcomb spoke. I've saved two shots. Will you have one, Runnels? Suffocation's a rotten way to go out. No! Runnels screamed. No, no! My God, no! Captain Francis Newcomb's laugh was choked and gasping. "'You always were a stinking coward, Runnels,' he said. "'Well, suit yourself.' The tongue flame of a revolver lanced through the blackness. Runnels screamed and screamed again. Sprawling on the floor, his hand fell upon the package of banknotes he had dropped there. He tore at them now in his raving, tore them to pieces, tore and tore and tore, and screamed. But presently there was no sound in the old madman's hiding-place. The tides are tongueless. They came and went, and kept their secret. In England, Scotland Yard sought diligently for the murderer of Sir Harris Greaves, and on a little island off the Florida Keys, long search was made for a great sum of money that an old madman in his demented folly had hidden. But neither the one nor the other was ever found. End of Book Three, Chapter Four. End of The Four Stragglers by Frank L. Packard. Recording by Lee Smalley.